dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, covenant theology, progressive covenantalism, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, pan-mill. These are all labels that feature in discussions of eschatology, a word which basically means the study of end times. As we enter Matthew chapter 24 this morning, we're going to begin looking at Jesus' most extensive teaching about the end times. I wonder if you've ever thought about why we have all of those labels and abbreviations. One of the reasons that we have Different Christians who are seeking to read their Bible faithfully, seeking to uphold God's Word carefully, but come to a variety of different conclusions about these matters is because the Bible is unclear about some of these issues. The question of the sequence of events that will involve Jesus' return to this earth is a question that continues to be debated and will continue to be debated until He does, in fact, show up on this planet again. Given the fact that Christians from all kinds of different persuasions, from all regions of the world, from all times of church history, have come to different conclusions about these matters, I want to challenge and encourage you to hold your own conclusions with humility. And I hope to take that advice myself. We ought to come to conclusions about these things. We ought to think about what the Bible does say about these things. But we should also acknowledge that many of the passages that talk about these things have ambiguities, difficulties, and complexities, so that putting the whole picture together is really hard work. I just want you to acknowledge that and be okay with it. Because it's true. It is really hard work. And another thing that I want you to see and recognize when we talk about these issues especially the tribulation, the rapture of the church, and the millennium, is that there isn't a single passage of Scripture that talks about all three at the same time. That makes it really hard for us to put the sequence together. And so we shouldn't be surprised that people might come to different conclusions about it. Another thing I want to challenge you toward as we open this up is that when you hear another Christian who draws a different conclusion than you do, No matter how much or how little study and thought you've put into it, don't assume that they've thrown their Bible out the window. Don't assume that there's some kind of liberal who doesn't believe the Bible. Don't assume that there's some kind of false teacher seeking to mislead us about these things. That's just not true generally. Certainly there are people who will want to mislead us, who want to deceive us. There are people who are twisting the scriptures. That happens. But don't let that be your default assumption about people when they are talking about these particular topics. We ought to be able to get along really well and come to different conclusions on some of these things. We need to approach these texts with an attitude that says, you know, There's one thing that we really have to agree on, and that is that Jesus is coming back. That is the one event that nobody within Christianity is disagreeing about. All of the rest of the pieces, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, we can disagree about and get along just fine. And most folks are not abandoning biblical authority to get to their conclusions. So let's Jump in. As we come into Matthew 24, you're not going to hear about the millennium, and there are lots of other more important things that Jesus talks about. I don't think it's my responsibility to tell you at every single point what all the different opinions are. We'd be here for a long time. So I'm not going to do that. On occasion, I will bring that up to help orient you, especially if I think I'm probably telling some of you something that's different from what you've heard before. I know that we don't all have the same understanding of these things in this building. So I'm not going to try to make everybody happy. That's not my job either. My responsibility is to show you what I see 
and explain it as best I can. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. And if you want to, talk to me about it. That would be even better. Maybe on a Sunday night at 6 o'clock when we sit down and a group of us will discuss the sermon. It would be a great time if you've got questions to come and talk with us. Us, not just me, about these things. I hope you'll come to talk with me and not at me. And I'll try to do the same with you. So in Matthew 24, we're returning to the middle of Passion Week. The final week of Jesus' life. It's still Tuesday. This is the last of five discourses, five blocks of teaching that Matthew records for us. And we've looked at the outline that you find in your bulletins a few times in our journey through Matthew. And you can see it up on the screen, I hope, in the next slide Um, there. You'll notice that in this structure, this final discourse which holds together chapter 23 with chapters 24 and 25, is meant to parallel the first discourse, the kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. So the kingdom life discourse in chapters 5 to 7 taught citizens of the heavenly kingdom how we should live in this world. Now the kingdom coming discourse focuses on how we should live in anticipation of Jesus' return and the consummation of the kingdom. Also, there in the bulletin, you can see on the other side an expanded outline of how I see chapters 24 and 25 fitting together. You should take that home and look at it and keep looking at it, perhaps, over the next few weeks. You should view this as a provisional outline. It might get tweaked along the way as I continue studying and working through these passages. Um, But that's how I see things in general. And so you can see where we're headed in some sketch outline form there. You can put that away now so you're not distracted for the rest of the time this morning. As we come into Matthew 24, let's set the stage by simply reading verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is very plainly announcing the destruction of the temple. No figures of speech, no metaphors, just plain and straightforward. The temple that the disciples are admiring is going to be flattened. Now the disciples are interested in the temple. They are impressed by the temple. And I think we might say that they're overly impressed with the temple at this point. If we think back through what Jesus already taught them, they've already been told that there's something greater than the temple that is here. That was back in Matthew chapter 12, and he was talking about himself. And so as they accompanied the one who is greater than the temple away from the temple, they're stuck on the temple. They're stuck admiring how beautiful it is. And it was beautiful. But the fact that Jesus is with them the one who is greater than the temple, the one who has come to replace and fulfill the temple. You see, everything that the temple was for, everything that the Jewish people would go to the temple to do, to offer sacrifices, to receive forgiveness of sins, to pray and to commune with God, all of that is now to be done in Jesus and not in any particular building on the planet. Physical temples are no longer relevant. They no longer matter now that Jesus, the embodiment of God's presence, has come. But they haven't gotten that yet. And so they're obsessed, impressed, and they can't get over the beauty of the temple. And they want Jesus to look at it and share their admiration. Well, he doesn't. He's leaving the temple for the last time. They don't see the importance of this moment. He's leaving the temple, going away from it, abandoning it for the last time. He's already pronounced judgment against the temple a number of times in the last few days in several different ways. He's already announced the judgment against the temple and the personnel of the temple, the the priests who do their work in the temple. They are under God's judgment because of the way they've mishandled God's word and misled God's people. So, as Jesus forsakes the Jerusalem temple, he heads east out of the city. And as we'll see in verse 3, he'll take a seat on the Mount of Olives. 
This movement seems to reflect another Old Testament judgment of God. In Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, the prophet received a second grand vision of the glory of God. Like his first vision, recorded in chapter 1, the prophet sees cherubim carrying God's chariot throne. But in this vision, in chapter 10, he sees the glory of God being escorted out of the temple. In Ezekiel 10, 18, and 19, we read the prophet's description. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Then in Ezekiel 11.23, the vision concludes with these words, And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. What mountain would that be? That would be the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel's vision reported to the prophet Yahweh's abandonment of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., preparing for the invasion of the Babylonians who would destroy the city and Solomon's temple. Jesus seems to be purposely acting out that vision. Since He Himself is the embodiment of God's glory, we see the glory of God again abandoning the temple, leaving the city and leaving it for its imminent destruction. As Jesus had said in chapter 23, he is leaving their house desolate. So Jesus has now, in plain speech, announced the destruction of the temple, which will occur about 40 years after Jesus says these words. 70 AD is a year that you ought to file down somewhere in your memory as a significant event in the history of God's dealings with the Jewish people and as an important fulfillment of biblical prophecy the final destruction of the temple. This temple had been constructed during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Perhaps you remember some of that story. But since those days, 400 years earlier, Herod had taken responsibility for making it even bigger and even better. And he did a great job. It really was a magnificent building to behold. The disciples are impressed with it, but they've missed the point that its days are numbered. And its purpose is gone. It's over for the temple. Verse 3 then gives us their disturbed response. The disciples hear him say this and they're troubled. And so they ask him two questions. When and what sign? Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things be? When will the events transpire that would result in the flattening of this magnificent temple that we love so much? When is that going to happen? And they also ask, what will be the sign? What will be the indicator that the end of the age and your coming is right around the corner? They lumped these three events together. In their minds, the destruction of the temple, the coming of Jesus, or as we would say, the second coming or the return of Jesus, and the end of the age. Why would they do that? Well, I think it's because this temple was so magnificent and they still viewed it as a sign of God's presence with them. They're in shock. They're in utter disbelief that it's time for it to be destroyed as the prophet Daniel had prophesied long ago. So if it was to be destroyed in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, then that must be an indicator also of the end of the age. That must mean the end of the world. It would certainly mean the end of the Jewish world. And so they're puzzled and they're thinking, if you're talking about the destruction of this building, then you must be talking about the future end of the age. And we want to know, when is that going to happen? And what can we look for that will let us know it's time to get ready? They want to know about a sign. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew, asking for a sign is typically not a good idea. He had some pretty harsh words for people who ask for a sign. The Pharisees came asking for a sign that would demonstrate and prove his authority. And remember what he said to them? An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, 
The disciples seem to have missed that point, and they seem to be caught up in the evil and adulterous generation at this point. They're asking for a sign here, and we should view this question negatively. But it's understandable, isn't it? They want to know, what can we see with our eyeballs that will get us ready? Well, we want to know when it's going to happen. We want to be ready when it does. What's going to happen that will tell us it's time to get ready? Now, it's interesting to me that they ask about your coming. Think about that from the disciples' vantage point. We're comfortable talking about Jesus' second coming, but for the disciples, at this point in the story... Jesus has told them multiple times that he's going to die and be raised from the dead on the third day. But each time he said that, they responded poorly. They either told him, that's never going to happen to you, or they just utterly didn't get it. They were bewildered. And they never seemed to catch the statement about him being raised from the dead on the third day. It goes in one ear and out the other every single time. So it's not clear that they really understand that he's going to be leaving. And so when they ask about your coming, Where do they think he's going? How long do they think he's going to be gone? What are they asking about here? I'm not real sure. Perhaps they're still, just a few days before Jesus is going to die, still swept up in the idea that the coming of the Messiah must involve the overthrow of the Romans. The coming of the the Messiah must involve the liberation of the Jewish people to bring final salvation for them. And that hasn't happened yet with Jesus on the scene. So when they speak of the sign of your coming, maybe they're thinking about when he's going to do all of that. When he's going to come liberate the Jews, since that hasn't happened yet. And for them, that is to be connected with the end of the age, as it is in the Old Testament prophets. Well, let's see how Jesus answers them. And this is where students of Scripture diverge most sharply. The disciples have asked two or three questions, depending on how you count, but it's basically two questions. So in the verses that follow, he could answer both questions. He could answer both questions in the order that they asked them, or he could answer both questions by starting with the last question and then answering the first question, or he could not answer either question. He could tell them about other things instead. Or he could answer one question and not the other one. And different students of Scripture have explained what he's doing in all of those different ways. So, depending on how you think Jesus is actually answering their questions or not, and in what order, that really shapes the way you understand what Jesus actually says. So, I'll tell you what I see, and we'll proceed from there. We'll start with verses 4 through 8. I think Jesus begins by warning the disciples before he responds to their questions. He realizes that their questions are so wrong-headed and that the disciples are primed to be led astray. Their thinking is focused on the wrong things. They're enamored by the temple. And now, when he says it's going to be destroyed, instead of saying, okay, good, They remain caught up in it and are wondering, well, how can we know when this is going to happen? And so he's saying, okay, if you're going to be thinking about signs, you're really primed to be led off course. So let me correct that, and then we can start dealing with the questions you actually asked. So I think he starts by warning them. The two commands that appear in these verses are, don't be deceived and don't be troubled. Don't be deceived and don't be troubled. That's the payoff here from verses 4 through 8 for them and for us. So let's see how Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So 
His bottom line answer is to say, don't be led astray. And then he lists several things that could lead them astray. First, he mentions false messiahs, people who are going to come and say, I am the Messiah. If Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and leave, then he's going to be gone. Hypothetically, somebody after that, after he's gone off the scene, could show up and say, I am the Messiah. And then such a person could lead people to try to rebel against the Roman overlords. That very thing happened lots of times very soon after Jesus ascended to heaven. So with Jesus gone, people are going to show up and try to fulfill the traditional idea of what was understood to be the Messiah's role, to set the Jewish people free, to bring an end to the Roman overlordship, to bring in that kind of salvation. And so they're going to come and claim, I am the Messiah, follow me. Let's rebel against the Romans. That's not what Jesus did, but that's still what the Jewish people were waiting for. And so because that's their focus, because that's what they want, people will appear who will claim to have what they've been looking for all along, and it will prove to lead many astray. Thus, Jesus is warning the disciples that their mindset at this moment is already setting them up to be deceived. So they need to stop thinking this way. As Jesus will later explain, when he does return, everybody will know. There won't be a question. No one will be asking, did he come yet? Or is that the guy? Or is this the guy? Everyone will know. Now at this point, let me point out what I think is a very important thing to keep in mind. This is a very important detail for my understanding of this entire chapter. I believe it's crucial to remember that Jesus is actually addressing these men, these disciples. He's saying that these specific disciples should expect to experience these things. He's warning them Mark's gospel specifies that it was four of the disciples who approached Jesus with these questions. And at several points, Jesus is going to directly say, you guys are going to see and experience certain things. The next thing he warns them about are things that have happened all the time, all over the world, throughout history, both before and after Jesus came, starting with wars and rumors of wars. In most of our English Bibles, it simply says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But there's a Greek word that's sometimes left untranslated. Jesus literally says to these four men, you are about to hear of wars and rumors of wars. You are about to. He's pressing on them the imminence of these things. This is going to happen real soon. You're about to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. So with the mention of the end here, we should ask the question, the end of what? The end of the age, like they asked about, I suspect. But even that isn't precisely clear. Does he mean the end of the Jewish age? The age of the old covenant? Or the end of their lives? But it seems that we must keep Jesus's words in the context of what these four disciples have asked. They've asked about the sign of the end of the age. Jesus is saying, don't worry about wars and conflicts in the world. They are not an indicator that the end is coming. The end is not yet. All these things must take place. They are part of God's plan, but they're not an indicator of the timing of the end. So when you hear about wars... Don't think that they're a sign of the end. See that you're not alarmed or troubled. Then Jesus explains that a little bit more. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then he adds to that famines and earthquakes in various places. And then he calls all of these things the beginning. These things were the beginning of the birth pains. Why did Jesus mention these specific things? Wars, famines, and earthquakes. What would be the significance to these guys about those things? In the Old Testament, there are about 30 
references to God specifically using warfare and famine as manifestations of his wrath and judgment in history. God pours out his wrath and judgment in history, both against Israel and against other nations through wars and famines. That's not even counting the passages that talk about nations like Assyria and Babylon as God uses them as his instruments of judgment against Israel. Also, there are at least 20 references in the Old Testament to earthquakes or mountains shaking in connection with God's judgment and wrath. That's not counting quakes that are generally connected with God's presence. When God shows up, the world shakes. But in more than 20 occasions, the world shakes because he's pouring out his wrath on somebody. He's exercising his judgment against somebody. And this is exactly what I believe Paul says in Romans 1.18. Indeed, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who try to suppress the truth by unrighteousness. The present tense there, is being revealed suggests that God is always pouring out His wrath in and throughout history. Jesus is simply saying here that His disciples shouldn't be terrified by the judgment God is working out against unbelievers or think that this pouring out of wrath in history is an indicator that the end is near. He's warning them about the wrong conclusion they might draw from these things. But then He says these are the beginning of birth pains. This implies that these pains are going to keep going and they're going to get worse. Isn't that right, moms in the building? Birth pains, contractions, tend to get more intense, more painful as the baby gets nearer to being born, right? However, Jesus says, don't be alarmed by these things. Now, when a woman has contractions, she typically gets alarmed. And if you're a good husband, you get alarmed along with her. But Jesus is saying, in this realm of birth pains, don't get alarmed. In other words, Jesus is telling his followers not to be concerned by the occurrence of wars, the news about wars, famines, or earthquakes. These are not indicators that the end is nigh. When we hear of all the global unrest, the wars, the terrorism, the devastation of natural disasters, political intrigues all over the world. Many of us are tempted to say, look at the world, how awful things are getting. Jesus' return must be soon. Yet this is exactly the kind of thinking that Jesus is warning against. It's easy to be deceived when our attention is riveted by the wrong things. I want to say one more word about the imagery of birth pains. Why do women have birth pains? They are a result of God's judgment of Adam and Eve for their rebellion in the garden. In Genesis 3.16, God said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So, in addition to having a literal fulfillment in literal women's experience, this became a fitting image for suffering under the judgment of God. And biblical writers, Old Testament and New Testament, use it repeatedly for that very thing, to describe what it's like to experience the judgment of God. Now, this imagery may also suggest that these pains will occur over a very long period of time. Paul uses the imagery of birth pains for creation itself in Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And when did those birth pains start? He doesn't say, but I dare say that the whole creation is still today groaning with these birth pains almost 2,000 years later. So it's certainly possible that Jesus is envisioning something similar. What's the point? One writer sums it up this way. One who is gripped by labor pains is not just dominated and racked by pain for a moment. They are dominated by a series of events. It is more than a pain. 
It is a process, a cycle. It is a pain or series of waves of pain that must run their course. Does that sound familiar to the ladies who've given birth? He adds one more thing, this author, on these, the nature of these pains. The pain of childbirth is not a steady pain, nor a steadily increasing pain, but a repeating phenomenon coming in waves over and over again. With the first one, you know that the inexorable process has begun, but, a, but you do not know that the baby will come on the fifth wave or the tenth or the twentieth. You know that the time is near, but not how near. This is related to what Jesus is saying. The author continues, Periods of wars and rumors of wars may come and go like birth pains. Many of the signs mentioned are repeated throughout history. Finally, this author adds, You can know when the time is ripe, but the baby appears when the baby appears. And throughout the labor, you must be on your guard. That is Jesus' primary point through this whole discourse. Be on your guard. Be ready. Be expectant. So the disciples are looking for a sign, and Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful about looking for signs. So then, in verses 9 to 12, Jesus adds some other things that his disciples should expect to experience along the way in the midst of the ongoing birth pains. We can sum it up in one word, danger. Look at verses 9 to 12. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I think in verse 9, we have what we might call external dangers, Dangers that come from outside the realm of the disciples, outside the church. The word translated as tribulation refers literally to pressure, squeezing. The idea is that there are going to be people and events and societies outside of the church that move in and seek to apply pressure on believers to abandon Jesus. That pressure takes a lot of different forms. It takes the form of threats against your job. If you don't abandon Jesus, I'm going to fire you. It may then escalate, perhaps, to the physical kind of pressure that involves beating and persecution of that sort. The kind of pressure that's applied from the world, its goal is to squeeze you so that you abandon Jesus. That's what tribulation can do to you. Squeeze you and crush you so that your faith disappears. At least that's its intent. It may, es- it may also escalate from there. Jesus says they will put you to death. They will murder you. Followers of Jesus should expect tribulation and martyrdom. I don't think we really expect martyrdom. We here today don't really expect that someone is going to kill us. Now, I think there's something relatively healthy about that so that we're all not super paranoid. But Jesus is telling us that we should expect it. So then if we don't experience it, if we're not martyred, if we're not murdered, we ought to view that as God's mercy to us and not the way it ought to be. Jesus says that his followers should expect tribulation, martyrdom, and hatred by all the nations, rejection by all the nations, rejection from every quarter. Because you're a follower of Jesus... That's what you should expect. Expect rejection and hostility to come because of your faith, because you're a believer in Jesus. And when you don't get it, maybe it's an indicator of God's mercy. Or maybe it's an indicator of your not truly following Jesus. This expectation is repeated throughout the New Testament. This is the normal Christian life. Tribulation, martyrdom, rejection. In verse 10, Jesus shifts to internal dangers. 
dangers that are going to come up among the followers of Jesus, that are going to come up within the confines of the church. He speaks of people falling away, stumbling into sin and apostasy, ultimately. People who we thought were believers are going to abandon the faith. People that we trusted are going to betray us. Now, I don't want you to look around nervously at your neighbors. But Jesus is warning us about people who might be sitting next to you who will turn on you. There's betrayal that happens in the church. He already mentioned hatred from all the nations. Now he's talking about hatred from the people who ought to love you and the people who ought to be caring for you. Not only hatred, but there's also deception. False teachers arise within the church. They don't just come from the outside. They don't just come from society or culture or other religions. False teachers rise up in the church and lead people astray. Jesus expands on the last one a little bit there in verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I think he's referring to lawlessness in the world. As lawlessness increases in the world, the result will be lovelessness in the church. Think about how that happens. How you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, respond to the increase of lawlessness out there makes a big difference. Beware of your response to the increase of sin and lawlessness in the world. I think the danger Jesus is describing can look a couple of different ways at least. One way is as you see people around you giving in to greater wickedness, you might get curious. You start to investigate. You begin to dabble. And then you get swept away into the same flood of sins so that your love for God and your love for others grows cold. Or another way love may grow cold because of the increase of lawlessness, it's just the frustration and despair we can feel when we look at how bad things are getting, how broken our political system is, how confused our generation is about a number of things. Sexuality, the nature of marriage, abortion, economic confusion, or the spread of violence are perhaps prime in our minds these days. We can find ourselves utterly demotivated to reach out in love to those outside the church unwilling to reach out, and frustrated even with God, wondering why He doesn't seem to be doing anything about any of it. And I confess, that aspect I see more and more of today amongst Christians. It concerns me personally when we're so focused on the brokenness of the world around us that that becomes our great great focus and the thing we want to complain about or talk about the most, rather than just talking about Jesus and how He's the remedy for all of that brokenness. We are distracted. And I think we're giving in to the kind of coldness that Jesus is warning us about here. So, given those realities, given that Jesus tells His followers that this is what it's going to be like, How should they respond? I think that's what verse 13 is saying. How should those disciples and us respond as we see these things unfold? Simply put, endure. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, we should ask the question, to the end of what? To the end of the age? To the end of the Jewish nation? To the end of the temple? the destruction of the temple that's coming in 40 years from their vantage point? However you answer that question, the message is the same. Endure to the end. The other question we must ask is, what does he mean by saved? If we're talking about the end of the Jewish nation, the end of the Jewish war that's going to come and result in the destruction of the temple, is, is he saying those who endure to the end of that will be saved alive? meaning they'll survive? They'll survive this event, this period of suffering that leads to the destruction of the temple. That seems odd to me because he just told them that they're going to be murdered. They should expect to be murdered. They should not expect to survive physically. I think he's talking about spiritual salvation. 
the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking about eternal salvation, eternal life. Now let's clarify this idea. Jesus is not speaking of us doing things in order to be saved. Enduring is not some work that we have to do to be saved. He's simply talking about the nature of true faith. Faith endures. We could go to multiple passages in Matthew and in the rest of the New Testament that describe this reality. If you really are in a relationship with Jesus, your faith will endure. Period. James would describe faith that doesn't endure as dead, unfruitful, unproductive, not real. And I think Jesus is warning about that same thing. He's telling them about these things that they are going to experience that will provide temptation after temptation after temptation to abandon following Jesus so that they will hang on, so that they will keep believing, so that their faith will endure. Now let's return to that first question, the end of what? His disciples are not going to survive to the end of the world. And many of them died even before the temple was destroyed. So what does he mean? Well, even though they died, their faith still endures. Their life still endures beyond death. They continue in their faith. Death is not the end of a person of faith. The disciples need to keep on believing to whatever end. Whether that end be dying of old age, dying of cancer, being murdered, or whether that end be the return of Jesus, keep on trusting Jesus. And the outcome will surely be salvation at the end. There will be no fear of judgment or condemnation when we have our day in court. The point is, you must endure. Even though all these threats come, even though all this pressure comes, your responsibility is to endure it. If that's there and our proper response to all of this, what should be there and our prime directive? That's what I think for verse 14 is about, the prime directive. What's their primary responsibility in all of this? And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. That means the disciples' prime directive should be the proclamation of the gospel. Preaching the gospel should be the prime directive of the follower of Jesus and of every local church throughout this age. Now, Jesus has plainly prophesied the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and connected it in some way with His coming so that the disciples could imagine that Jesus would return personally to destroy the temple and usher in the new creation. But that's not what happened. The disciples have asked for time markers. When and what sign. That's what they want to know. The only time markers he gives in this whole passage are the destruction of the temple and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. The destruction of the temple will be obvious and clear. The proclamation of the gospel to the nations will be less clear. Jesus here seeks to shift their attention, and ours too, if we'll listen to him, to the mission he wants us to accomplish. There's a job to do. Focus on the job. Focus on the mission of proclaiming the gospel to all nations, and then the end will come. How will you know when the job is finished? Guess what? You won't. Just focus on the job, on the mission. There's no way for us to assess with 100% certainty when or if the gospel has gone out to all nations. Today, we seek to reach all nations, every people group on the planet with the gospel. And we speak of unreached people groups And today we know roughly how many languages in the world have not had Scripture or the Gospel translated so it can be understood by them. But how do you define a people group? There's been debate about that. But the question really is, how does God define a nation? I don't know. He didn't give us a dictionary. So it's God's measurement and it's God's assessment that matters. 
He's the one who knows when the job is done. We're not able to make that assessment. The job hasn't changed because Jesus hasn't returned. We're still to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. The mission's not over yet until He comes. No matter what the numbers say, no matter what the percentages say, the mission still stands. And that's where I want to close this morning. We need to think about eschatology. That's our understanding of what the Bible teaches about the end times in relationship to the Great Commission. Do you notice that Jesus mentions all nations twice in this passage? I've pointed this out before. In verse 9, he says, you will be hated by all nations. Then in verse 14, he says, the gospel's got to go out as a testimony to all nations. So that means there should be a tension in our mission. We should be going to all the nations who are going to hate us. We should be going to all the nations who are going to reject us. We should expect rejection. We should expect hatred and persecution and opposition when we go into all the nations with the gospel. That's what Jesus says. That should be our expectation. But there is reception too. When people receive the gospel, we should and do celebrate and rejoice because God has done something amazing, something unexpected. Because based on what we know about humans, according to the Bible, it's unexpected that a human being, such as we are, fallen and sinful, would receive the gospel. That's unexpected. God does it. And we should be celebrating when it happens. It's the grace of God that accomplishes the mission. It's not our efforts. It's not our ability to go out to translate or to communicate via technology. That's not what accomplishes the mission. It's God's grace. We should expect hostility, difficulty, and rejection. We should expect persecution. We're surprised when it happens. We're taken off guard when it happens, but we shouldn't be. That should be our default expectation. And when it doesn't happen, we should praise God for His mercy. The Great Commission includes the term all nations also. So you'll be hated by all nations. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And the Great Commission is, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples of those nations that hate you. What a paradox. What a tension. What a mission. Go make disciples of all those nations that hate you. Whether we believe that we will be raptured prior to a period of intensified great tribulation, which we'll talk about next week, or that we may very well live through such a period, our responsibility remains the same. Endure tribulation. Endure suffering in whatever form it comes and continue to make disciples. Continue to communicate the gospel in word and deed. Wherever we are, wherever God calls us to be in the end, our hope is not the rapture to escape our suffering. Our hope is the rapture to meet Jesus face to face and to be transformed, to be like him. That's what the rapture is all about. Our blessed hope is not to escape from suffering. Our blessed hope is Jesus himself. Remember Paul's words in Titus 2, 11 to 14. I'd like to invite the music team to join me as I read these words to close out. When I'm done reading these words from Titus 2, I'm going to step down from this pulpit and I invite you to stand with me and we're going to sing the song that we sang earlier, Even So Come. I want that to be our heart's cry this morning as we leave this building. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. Pay close attention to what he emphasizes. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you stand with me and sing?